going to try to wrap it up this morning. This is Psalm 139, starting in verse 13. You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Ephesians 2.10 says this, We were created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he created in advance for us to do, or created in advance for us to walk in. The idea is not that there's a few tasks that Jesus wants you to do, but there's this lifestyle that he wants you to live. And if you smash both of those passages together, to me what you get is a God who created you, who knit you together, who formed you in your mother's womb, who knows you inside and out, personality, strengths, likes, all of that. That God also created a life for you, and they're going to fit together. The one who knows you the best created a life for you to live. And that's what we're trying to, that's all that we're talking about. That's what we're trying to get at, living this life that God has created for us to live, these good works that he wants us to walk in. If you don't do that, if you don't figure out the grace God has given you, if you're not willing to shape your lifestyle around that grace, if you're not willing to do the good works God has put in front of you, the best you can hope for, this is the top thing you can have to look forward to, is a sense of low-grade frustration for the rest of your life. That's it. That's the best thing you can hope for, this nagging suspicion that you're living a subpar life, because you are. God has created this life for you, and he knows you the best, so it's going to fit. Jesus says his yoke is easy. That, that word is well-fitting, and his burden is light. And if we don't get that, if we're not living that life that he's created for us, then we're swimming upstream. It's, it's wearing your shoes on the wrong feet. You can do it for a little while, but it's going to hurt long-term. And you're going to have to sit down and quit. That, that's what it is if you're not willing to make the changes to your lifestyle to accommodate the grace God has given you. You're, you're swimming upstream, and eventually you're going to wear out. That looks like depression. That looks like bailing on your marriage 15 years into it. It looks like a midlife crisis. It, all, any number of things. At some point, we can't live with the tension that we're not doing what we were created to do, and it's going to come out. So don't get there. Make the changes to your life. God is not trying to rob you of joy or peace or fulfillment or any of those things. What he's saying is, I know what's going to give you all of those things because I made you. That's it. Because he made us, he knows the best life for us to live. And when he gives us grace, he expects us to shape our life around it. That's when you're going to find the most joy and the most peace and the most fulfillment. And you're going to have the most impact on the people you love. We've got to get this. We have to. Otherwise, you're, you're, missing, you're missing it. And it is, that's, that's all there is. The best you can hope for is low-grade frustration. Another thing, the vision for our church is community transformation, and that doesn't even mean anything. It's so ambiguous. What I want you to think about are the people who you bump into. Your kid's school, the place where you work, the city council that meets right over there. Those concrete tangible organizations, the faces that come into your mind. What we want to see is we want to see all of those people and things become what God wants them to be. We're not looking to take over anything and plant some Christian flag at the courthouse. What we want is for 
everyone and everything to be what God created to be because that's the best thing for all of us. And as we do our deals, as we all shape our lifestyle around the grace he's given us, that begins to happen. We've said before that the, the thing is to be a channel of God's grace. That's the point of all of this. It's not so you can have a fulfilling life and pat yourself on the back. It's so you can be a channel of God's grace to people you're in a relationship with. And as more and more of us intentionally do our deal, that's shorthand for us for God's will for your life or his purpose for you or your destiny, whatever little phrase you want to use, the good works he's created for you to do. As you do your deal, you become a channel of grace to other people. And as more and more of us become those channels of grace, that means there's more grace flowing into people's lives and into our community. That can't be a bad thing. It's a good thing. To me, it's, it's not just about us living life well, although that's great. It's about us living life well and being a channel of grace so other people can as well. That's why we're, get, we're just, we keep coming back to this. I think it's so important for us to get. I know it's not necessarily easy. It can be frustrating. It's important. In Acts 20, Paul's speaking to a group of friends for what he thinks is the last time. We said last week he's going to Jerusalem. He knows he's supposed to go to Jerusalem. He knows he's going to get arrested. He doesn't know what's going to happen after that. So he's meeting these guys, and he's talking to them for the last time and kind of giving him this farewell thing. And in verse 24, he says this, However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of grace. I'm going to wrap this whole thing up today by looking at two things that will keep you from finishing the race. Here's a few verses. I'm just going to hit them real quick. Luke 8:15. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering produce a good crop. In Luke 21, Jesus is telling his disciples how to handle persecution. He says this in verse 19. By standing firm, that's the same word as persevere, you will gain life. Romans 2.7, to those who by persistence, that's the same word as persevere, in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality who will give eternal life. Hebrews 10.36, you need to persevere so that when you've done the will of God, you'll receive what he has promised. Hebrews 12.1, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. It's always tricky to try to decide who's in and who's out. That's above our pay grade, we can't, whatever. This is what the New Testament says to me. Repeatedly and consistently, you've got to finish the race. You, have to, you can't finish anything you haven't started. So absolutely, you've got to start. But you have to finish. It makes sense. Nobody gets the prize who doesn't cross the finish line. Perseverance is huge for us if we're going to finish the race. You can't finish without it. And if you don't finish couple different places in the Bible it says it'd be better if you never started. That's in 2 Peter and in Hebrews. It's better to never start than to start and quit. You've got to finish. I've got to finish. There's a race that's laid out for us and God wants to see all the way until you die. Cross the finish line. I'm going to hit you in the face with a baseball bat this morning, but it's because I love you. If this is your first time, I love you too. I need you to hear this. It's important for us. It's important for you. Again, this whole thing about there's a life for you to live. I want you to live it. That's my deal, is helping all of whoever is in my life living the life that God has for them. You've got to get it. And it's 
wonderful when you do. There is a couple of things that will come up that will keep us from finishing the race, and they can be hard things to grab onto. There can be some emotional stuff with that, and I know, I I realize all of that. So hear me, I'm just going to go as blunt as I can, but I'm not trying to be rude or mean. I just, we need to get this stuff. Two things that can keep us from finishing the race. This is James 1. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. There's that idea again. And perseverance must finish its work. I want you to grab that. Perseverance must finish its work, not optional. Why? So that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Perseverance is not some optional extra for super Christians or people who are really into this thing. It's all of us. Perseverance must finish its work. Why? So we'll be mature and complete, not lacking anything. We say repeatedly, God's desire for all of us is to become as much like Jesus as possible before we die. That's Romans 8.29. And Jesus was mature and complete and didn't lack anything. That's what he wants for us. What produces that? Perseverance. What develops perseverance in us? Trials. Trials are one of the things that can derail us from finishing our race. But if we see them correctly and if we approach them correctly, they can be the thing that propel us forward to maturity and wholeness and completeness. It all depends on kind of how you approach it. That seems silly to me, weird, for James to say, consider it joy when you face various trials. We talked last week about Paul. He had all kinds of them. Beaten up, whipped, thrown in jail, hungry, cold, naked, thirsty, stoned, all kinds of stuff. So what James is saying to Paul would be, Paul, I want you to consider it joy when you face beatings and stonings and imprisonments and being cold and hungry and naked and rejected, thirsty, all that. I want you to consider all of that facing all of that joy because all of that stuff can produce, will produce perseverance in you and perseverance must finish its work in you so that you'll be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And he says the same thing to us. A trial is any external circumstance that causes you difficulty. Any external circumstance that causes you difficulty is a trial. I'm sure if I had a note card under your chair and I asked you to write three to five trials over the last 12 months, most of you wouldn't have any problem. If we started comparing notes, you might say, well, yours are more significant than mine, or I was a sissy for thinking that was a trial, or what? There's some relativity there for sure. But any external circumstance we face that's difficult, that causes us difficulty, that's a trial. So get your list and hear James say to you, consider it joy, fill in your name. When you face, fill in those three to five. Because those things produce perseverance. (laughs) And perseverance must finish its work so you will be mature and complete and not lacking anything. I don't think that God sits back and watches us to see how far we can run without him. That's not the point. He's not sitting back there saying, I wonder if she can go one more day. I wonder if he can take one more step. That's not what he's doing. But he does want to, we have to learn how to persevere. We have to develop that characteristic or we won't finish. And the point is finishing. If you don't finish, you don't get the reward. So don't even start. And the thing that produces perseverance 
it's trials, which by definition are difficult. Trials can derail you in a couple of different ways. They can sap you of your energy and your motivation. You know that. Whatever your three to five is, you've probably had times where you just, you're just tired of it. It's been a week. It's been a month. It's been three months. Can this thing just end? The, the difficulties, the trials can just kind of erode your motivation or your energy to keep going and kind of suck the joy out of life. And for a lot of us, when, we hear, when you hear me say perseverance, what you hear is grit your teeth and put your head down and just keep plowing through. And it's up to you to make that thing happen. You're going to get through it, and that's how it's going to be. This is Romans 15.5. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement, that word endurance is the same word as perseverance, give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as, as you follow Jesus Christ. What I want you to hear is God gives perseverance. You don't persevere because of how strong your will is. You persevere because of how good God is. And that he will give you the grace to endure. We talked several weeks ago about Mary and kind of the theme of her life for us. Is just do what you can. For some of you, that's it. You need that today and tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday. The prayer you need to pray is, God, give me the grace to endure. Because that's all you can do. And you need to be okay with that. You don't have to be Superman and you don't have to be Superwoman and you don't have to fix it and you don't have to try to smile through it and you don't have to try to figure out how you're going to Put all the pieces together. The Bible's very clear. Jesus, all things hold together in Jesus. That means you don't have to hold them all together. He's already got it. And for some of you, all you need to do is say, give me the grace to endure. That's all you can do, and that's all he's asking. But these trials can sap you even of that. Second thing, trials can distract us. This is Matthew 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into a boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he dismissed them, he went up on a mountain to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand, caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? Well, we're not going to rip on Peter because he sank. He's the only one that got out of the boat. So he's, he's farther down the road than most of the rest of the guys who just sat there shaking in the boat. The point for me, for us, is... When a trial comes, the waves, the wind, all of that stuff, very, very, very easy to focus on those things, and we lose sight of Jesus. And what happens is then we start to sink, and then we panic. Because not only do we have whatever the trial is, and usually the trials carry with them, there's confusion, there's frustration, there's anger, there's sadness, there could be some physical thing if it's because you're sick. I mean, there's all kinds of circumstances, and they're bad because it's a trial. All of that stuff is swirling around you, and then because it's right here in your face every day, you can't see beyond it. And you lose sight of Jesus, and then you begin to sink, and then you panic because you're sinking, in addition to everything else. It's bad. Trials can keep you from finishing the race because they can change your focus. And you start looking at them, and it's natural to look at them because they're right here. 
but then you start to sink, and then you panic, and then you don't know what to do. Jesus is our guide. This race that he's put in front of us, it's not, you're not on a track, it's not a well-marked, it's like an adventure race where you're dropped in the middle of the jungle, and you don't know which way to go. You've got to stay close to the guide. And if you're looking at your trial, you can't be looking at him also. And that gets you into trouble. You're going to get lost. And then you're going to sink. Then you panic. It's bad news all the way around. The only thing that I know to do, and this is much easier said than done, is to somehow put Jesus in between you and the trial. I'm wearing contacts. Everything I see, I see through my contact lenses. If there were blue tinted contact lenses, then all of y'all would look blue. And everything I see would look blue because everything I see, I see through my contacts. And somehow, we got to figure out what does it look like for me to wear Jesus tinted contact lenses. So when I look at my whatever it is, I'm seeing it, I'm seeing him first. I'm seeing it through the grid of him. I don't know how else you do it. To me, you only have two other choices. You can ignore your problem. You can ignore the trial, which is denial, which doesn't help you. Or you can focus on it, which doesn't help you, because then you're going to sink. I don't know what the other choice is, the other option, other than if it's here to somehow put Jesus here. So I see it through him. Again, easier said than done. It's the only way I see forward. If you're struggling, if there's some, whatever your three to five were, if there's one going on right now, and you feel yourself sinking, the first thing you can do is you can just ask for help. That's what Peter did. Jesus isn't going to tisk, tisk, tisk you. He's not going to do that. He's going to reach out his hand. He's going to pull you up. Step one. Step two, you've got to figure out how to put him in between. So he's the lens that you're looking at this trial through. Again, that's easier said than done. It's the only way forward that I see. Otherwise, you're going to become consumed by this thing. You're going to look at the wind, you're going to look at the waves, and you're going to lose sight of the God, and you're going to get lost. Third thing, and this is the worst to me, trials can cause us to doubt God. When these things come, again, there's usually some, they're bad, and so there's usually some baggage that comes with them. We take some shots, there's some blows, and it can cause you to begin to question God's love, God's faithfulness, God's goodness, God's power. You wonder, does he care? Does he know? If he's powerful and if he's loving, then how come he let this happen or how come he caused this or how come he didn't fix it? And these trials can keep you from finishing the race because, honestly, they cause you to doubt God. And you just step off. You, you step back. You quit running because you begin to question who he is. We don't have time to get into why bad things happen to good people and all of that. Some of you, that's not a philosophical question. That's a very personal issue for you right now. And well-meaning people have said, there's a reason for fill in the blank. And you're trying to find good in the midst of evil. And let me say this. There is a reason for. And the reason is there's an enemy who steals and kills and destroys. And sometimes he wins. He never wins long term. But sometimes he wins in the short term. God does not kill babies. And God does not cause cancer. And God does not burn down houses. The enemy does those things. And if you're trying to find 
why God in the middle of that? You're asking the wrong question. That's not him. Everything I see about God in the Bible, his character, he is 100% violently opposed to evil. So to somehow say, God caused this, I think you're missing it. You can disagree with me. You'd be wrong. You can disagree with me. It's not in there. He doesn't cause. He doesn't allow. It happens because of the world. We don't have time to... I can give you the foundation if you want it. What you need to know as someone who's in the middle of that. Don't try to make evil good. Call it what it is and ask the guy who can fix it to fix it. That's what he does. He doesn't cause all things. He causes all things to work for good. It's two different things. He takes junk and he turns it beautiful. Beauty from ashes. He restores the years the locusts have eaten. That's what he does. First few chapters in Acts, you see the first couple of sermons that were ever preached. And what Peter is saying is, y'all, he's talking to the Jews, Y'all did a terrible thing. It was wretched. It was awful. It was evil. You killed Jesus. You killed God. God fixes it. God redeems it. Joseph, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. There's nothing good about getting thrown in jail for two years, falsely accused of something, and then forgotten about. Joseph didn't do anything. That wasn't his fault. And God didn't cause it. He just fixed it. He redeemed it, and that's what he does. That's the side you need to stand on. Don't try to call evil good. There's no reason. He doesn't call evil good. He calls it what it is, and he fixes it. There's a... There's something... Some of it, it's well-meaning. We're trying to defend God. And so we want to say, well, he, he had a reason for it. He had a purpose for it. Our hearts are right. We're trying to defend him. We don't want there to be something that happened that he didn't want to happen. Because then what does that say about him? Is he still all-powerful? Is he still sovereign? Is he still in control? If stuff happens that we don't want, he doesn't need a defense attorney. He's good. You don't, that's not your job. You don't have to play that role for yourself or for anybody else. His character, he's 100% opposed to evil. The only time in the Bible you'll see him kind of meeting out punishment is when he's judging folks who have been consistently rebellious to him. If you are consistently rebellious to Jesus and you're going through a trial, I would say you need to sit up and take notice because that is his judgment on you. And you need to put on your big boy pants because it's not going to be fun. But the point is to get you to repent. If it's temporary pain now or hell forever, he takes temporary pain now every time. So yet there are times where God does, but even then it's not evil. It's good because he's trying to draw you back in. And he still doesn't kill babies, and he still doesn't cause cancer, and he still doesn't burn down houses. If you're living in rebellion, you need to turn around. 
it's only going to get worse. If you're not and you overly guilt-prone people, you would know if you were. You don't accidentally shoot God a bird. You're doing it on purpose, and you're doing it every day. If that's you, then you're living in rebellion. If it's not, then you're not. So stop trying to find it. Recognize it for what it is. We have an enemy who's powerful who wins sometimes. And God doesn't like it when he wins sometimes, but he's got to let him win sometimes so he can lose forever. And that's where we're headed. This is James 1, starting in verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God can't be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he's dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Sorry, And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Trials and temptation are not the same thing. They actually come from the same word. They're not the same thing. Temptation is always bad all the time. Trials can be good if we approach them the right way. That's why James says, consider it all joy, because trials can produce perseverance. And perseverance must complete its work so we can be mature and complete and not lacking anything. There's a good there. To me, God saves us through trials. He doesn't save us from them. Noah and the ark. Everything's flooding. It's going to be really bad. Here's an ark. You eight righteous people. You live there for the next few months. He doesn't zap them away to Mars and say, y'all live over here for a while while I take care of the earth. They stay. God sees them, saves them through the trials. I think uh, it's in Genesis maybe 7 where God closes the door of the ark. There's this picture of God sealing them up. Y'all are going to be okay. Not so much for everybody else. Y'all are going to be okay. That's how it is for us with trials. You have to go through them. He, he does not pull you out of them. Because to pull you out of them means you don't develop perseverance. And if you don't develop perseverance, you're not going to finish the race. And if you don't finish the race, you don't get the crown. And that's the point. He's not necessarily going to pull you out. He's going to see you through. Temptation is different. You run away from that stuff. You don't necessarily run away from trials. You don't have to go finding them. They will find you. It's not about beating yourself up and looking for a way to be a hero. You live life, you'll experience trials. And when you do, you just you persevere through. Do what you can and persevere through. Temptation is different. It's internal. Trials are external. They come at us. Temptation comes from us. That's what James says, our evil desires that cause us to be tempted. Y'all have been like to Dick's Sporting Goods or someplace where there's a, one of those climbing wall things? You know, like the kitty ones have tons of handholds, and then the more advanced you get, the fewer the handholds? That's where you want to be. You don't want to give handholds. Your evil desires are handholds for sin to grab onto. God can't be tempted by evil because there are no handholds. There are no evil desires in him. There's nothing to tempt. That's why we sin. It's not because of anything out here. It's because of a whole lot of stuff in here. There are handholds in my heart that sin can grab onto, and I'm tempted there. We've talked about this before. This is nothing righteous about me at all. It's just not my thing. There's no handhold here. I don't cuss. I just don't. I cussed for about three months of my life. That was it. Some of you cuss all the time. 
Some of you are repeaters. Some of you are first letter cussers. Some of you are full out, flagrant, out in the open, except around me, cussers. And that's what you do. Whatever. Drop a weight on my toe. I'm not going to cuss. I don't, have, I don't bite my tongue. I don't pop a rubber band on my wrist. I don't substitute. None of that. It's not in me. It doesn't come out of me. There's no handhold there. Walk by these windows in some get-up. There are all kinds of handholds for me on that. I'm going to say something. That's why I keep my blinds closed. I'm going to say something. Try to parallel park and don't do it. I'm going to say something. It's not good. That's a handhold. I'm sarcastic. That's a handhold for me. That's an evil desire in me that can be grabbed onto. You cuss, I make fun of people. Neither one is better than the other. They're both bad. The, the, the key to all of it is you can't put a fence around it. God is not trying to teach us better manners. He's trying to make us new people. It's two different things. Our mindset is let me build a fence around whatever this thing is. Let me figure out how to not sin. So I shut the blinds. Still, the evil desire is there. I didn't, take, I didn't get rid of it. Some of you struggle with sexual purity, and you think when you get married, it's going to get better. It's not. It's absolutely not. Your problem is not that you're single. Your problem is you have an evil desire. And getting married doesn't get rid of it. For some of you, it's lust. For some, it's fear. For some, it's control. For some, it's selfish ambition. For some, it's vanity. Whatever. It's pride. I don't know. You know what it is. As long as that handhold is there, you're giving sin something to grab onto in your life. And the key is to get rid of the handhold. And you do that by killing it, not by putting a fence around it. That's the whole picture in the New Testament. Dying so we can live. Dying with Christ so we can live with him. That's where this thing is headed. You don't manage sin. You kill it. If not, read the Bible. Death is what follows. Death when it's full born. Sin when it's full born, when it's fully blown, gives birth to death. You don't want that. You gotta kill it. Let's pray.